This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? It's summer at last. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr Doolittle and we have a lot to discuss this morning. Today in the studio, we've got a special guest, Amanda Pomery, the Director of Support and Community Outreach for the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. Amanda's going to tell us all we need to know about, I don't know, the prostate probably, and why we need foundations to encourage men to look after their own health. What is wrong with you, men, in general? Also in the studio, we have a new panellist. Oh, I can hear you're going, what? Are you introducing a new panellist the last month of the year? Yeah, we're innovative. If nothing else, we are innovative. The new panellist is, let me get to it, Cyber Sue. And Cyber Sue is a nurse who specialises in all sorts of technologies, in particular telehealth, and has, in fact, been a guest on this show before. Hmm, so she's jumped the divide to sit on the panel. Cyber Sue is going to talk about a report that basically says words to the effect that if we don't get active in digital health quick smart, our health system will fall over forever. Sounds so dramatic. Plus, we've got the panel beater here, of course. He's here every week. Now, for those of you who don't know, the panel beater is just like the James Bond of health. He's suave, he's sophisticated, he seems to know everything, but none of us know how or why. The panel beater has found a report on how some countries use mental illness as an excuse to exclude people from the processes of democracy, like voting. I think for some reason democracy and voting has been in his head lately. But you know what? We are going to start with the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. And we're back. Panel beater. Good morning, Doolittle. You're the James Bond of health. <laughs> this week I am, apparently, yeah. You know how I never know what you do for a living? <laughs> yeah. Do your parents know? What parents? Oh. I, was, I came in on the pelican. Are you a virgin birth? Yep. Wait a second, is that like a pelican? Is that a, I suppose it's a virgin birth. Were there like, with, you don't happen to know, there was no YouTube around at the time, but was there like a star <laughs> in the sky above you and these three old dudes carrying shepherdy things? Because you have got a beard. I've beer. got no saviour complex. I'm, oh, that's sorry. good. Yeah. That's good because there's not room for two of us. <laughs> um, Cyber Sue, welcome aboard. Thank you. How do you feel jumping the divide? How long ago were you on as a guest? Can you remember? Oh, I reckon it was about 18 months ago, and just we, about. And it was telehealth you were talking about back then, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, video consultant to regional communities and um, kind of re- removing that um, inequity of access for people in the country. Now, did I say yeah. actually what you were? Let me go back to my introduction. Yeah, she's a nurse who specialises in... Yeah, yeah, I gave the basic intro. People know. People know. And we've got Amanda... Did I say your surname right, Pomery? You did. You I'm did. Like, Good morning. Uh, I'm terrible. Thank you for... No, you got it perfectly right. That's a miracle. <laughs> that's just like those monkeys, you know, typing Shakespeare in a dark room. Every once in a while just randomly... Eventually Shakespeare comes eventually, out. <laughs> and eventually I pronounce something correctly, especially <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Hey, thanks for making the trip to Brunswick. Was it a long trip for you? No, not too far. From South Yarra, so pretty good. good oh, but trip. you had to cross the river. I did. Do you need a visa? 
Yes, yes, very much so. I think I... Um, do, you have, do you have to apply to the South yeah, Yarra community? Yeah, we, to... we won't tell the rest of the community yeah. that I'm over here, so yeah. I'll, I'll get back as soon as I can and, and I'll, you know, um, make sure that I um, put in what I need to do. With, <laughs> and you look very fancy. You look, Thank you. You look Thank South you. Yarra. You look I'm fancy. I'm sorry. <laughs> do you drive, I, I won't embarrass you by saying do you drive a fancy car too. I won't go that far. But thanks for making the trip across. Now, we were going to start off with a little bit of catch-up. I think yeah. you were going to uh, start the ball rolling, weren't you, Tunnel Beaters? Maximus? Well, hashtag World World AIDS Day yesterday. Oh, hashtag, that's great. Yeah. Um, so, depending how you measure these things, uh, 30 years, apparently. So, and oh, what does that take us back to? 80... No, wait a second, what's 30 years? Can someone do 2018 <laughs> minus 30? I don't remember. since it. the first World AIDS Day. Yes. Right, I'm, not since... Well, yeah, actually, that's a good point. I didn't check out what was, like, what is the 30 years referring to? Because clearly the virus itself is older than that. Yeah. Because um, 30 years would take us to 88. I've just done the maths. 88, 98, 2008, 2018. Yeah. yeah. So, and c- clearly HIV predated that. So maybe, maybe. Um, well, though, when were the um, ads that came on Australian Grim television? Reaper. The Grim Reaper ads. The Grim so Reaper 82, ads. 83? Yes. Something like that? Yeah, around there, 84, 85. Someone will no doubt text him, but it's around then. Yeah. So I think the thing about World's Day, World AIDS Day for me was just how far we've come yep. but still how far we've got to go so the survival rate as i understand it is now through the roof like yep. so people provided diagnosis is um is timely um people have a really high survival rate compared to what it was um 30 years ago at least yeah um but when i went to the world aids day website they were reminded that in 2017 963 new hiv diagnoses in australia uh, yeah just in australia so just under a thousand still thousand diagnosis 20 a week yeah and is yep. that a number that's increasing well my impression from just the the quick bit of reading that i did during the week was that it's coming down um but perhaps the rate of decline is not what it was you know in the last 10 years i have this vague feeling because we've covered this a few times over the years, that it's been stubbornly um, sort of set at, at roughly that amount f- ever since sort of the end of the initial period where, when people found, you know... It, so for some reason, in the last 10 or so years, no-one's been able to, you know, knock it down. As far as I'm aware, I might be wrong. But it is really weird because the thing that gets me about HIV, I always have this weird feeling when I think about... HIV, because on the one hand, you know, it's, it's obviously a massive tragedy and it's a terrible illness and um, there's so mm. much that can be done to prevent it and, it's, and it is preventable, essentially. Um, yet on the other hand, it's also, you know, in my career, I know this is going to sound a little bit strange, but in my career it was the most exciting thing that happened. So yeah. it was weird. So when I started, so I graduated medicine in 88. And so, you know, through medicine, through my sort of seven years, yes, I know it's meant to be six, but there was this slight glitch. Um, through my seven years of studying, you know, it went from this weird thing that no one knew and it wasn't even named early on through to this stuff, mm. this illness towards the end that was this massive thing and had the potential to take over the world and people were scared stiff and no one knew how it was going to be prevented. There were no treatments. The tests were still in their early stages. And so lots of young doctors like myself were desperately keen to, you know, this was the cutting edge. So I, you know, I even tried in 86, I organised to do a locum in Sydney, uh, not a locum, an elective in Sydney for a month wow. to learn about it. As it turned out, I went up there and the professor who organised that had forgotten that he was going on holidays and I got there on my first day and I didn't get to do it. But then as a junior doctor, I went to work in it as well. So then I sort of got to follow it all the way through. It was, yeah. str- it was a strange dichotomy of the, on the one hand seeing a tragedy and on the other hand, yeah. the thing you, you, know, you wanted to do your whole life 
this was the best opportunity. It was this weird. Well, I, I think the the story of HIV/AIDS in say the rich West world, because obviously there's a whole other story yep. in the African world, um, um, is is really layered. You know, so we've got the the Grim Reaper ads. There's a whole yep. story about that that points to our culture and how we understood things at the time in public health. Um, do you remember like um, Magic Johnson? Uh, the NBA basketball player who, um, you know, represented, you know, hyper-masculinity. Yeah. Um, yes. And because at the time there was still this association with HIV-AIDS as a gay disease. I think it was actually called the gay disease, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was time? called the gay plague at various stages. It's, Although there were four groups that had it back then, the four H's um, that were called, yeah. um, homosexuals, heroin users, haemophiliacs and people who had visited Haiti because the initial yeah, right. um, stuff came out of Haiti. Yeah, yeah, and so we had that, and then obviously you're pointing to how what, how that then impacted the medical profession and yep. research and so on, um, and things like um, remember how Lady Di found her way into our hearts by yeah. visiting a an AIDS ward and, and hugging and hugging an yes. AIDS patient. How big a deal at that a was. time when at a time when people were still I at around that time I had because I went to work in HIV for and I did for oh, the better part of 10, 15 years. Um, people would still come and tell us that I went to someone's house for a dinner party and they found out afterwards that I had HIV and they threw out all the cutlery and threw out all the plates and you yeah. know, so it was yeah. that degree of fear in the community yeah. and also um, with peer support groups it was the AIDS group that often started off that concept of people coming together because they were ostracised at the time <laughs> and weren't able to connect in with others so they were actually having all of these support groups coming together sharing those experiences because they didn't feel comfortable talking to other people about what they were going through so actually those AIDS support groups were really the foundation for what we're seeing a lot with the cancer support groups as well. So yeah. there's a lot of advocacy and awareness and support concepts that AIDS have really been the foundation for what we're doing now in other diseases. Yeah, yeah I, I reckon there was two huge social movements that came out of HIV, the consumer movement. So HIV, this is what you're referring to, Amanda, um, the HIV changed the complete way we interact with patients which we, you know, consumers, the consumer movement. I remember I had, a, I remember a dramatic um, change back in the day too. I was sitting in the doctor's tea room at Fairfield Hospital, which was the HIV hospital in Victoria at the time, and I remember so clearly a doctor walked in and said, I organised a bloody MRI for a patient this morning at 11am and he's rung me up and told me 11am doesn't suit. Can I, he have it in the afternoon? <laughs> what does he think this is? And over the space of about five years, everything changed completely to then us when we would see someone saying, now look, you have to have an MRI at some stage. Um, what's going to suit you? He, these are the times available. Whereas early on, there was just none of that. Doctor said what was going on, everyone followed. You know, doctor did a ward round, patients sat up in bed and waited for the doctor. You know, and the whole situation changed so much for the better. Hey, oh, um, and the other one, of course, I think is what Kent's referring to when I say two big movements. The acceptance of homosexuality largely grew out of the HIV yeah. movement. Not entirely, but in part. No. no. Um, I know time's tight, but the one little corollary story to the HIV um, or World's AIDS Day is the huge, if true, story coming out of China this week. Did everybody catch no, this? No, tell us. I so haven't watched are, any news. There week. are claims, and um, initially the claims seem reasonable, but there's certainly an investigation going on. A Chinese scientist has claimed to have produced the first um, edited embryo babies. Oh, sorry, I did through HIV, uh, through um, IVF. But yeah. the relevance to raising it now yeah. in this conversation is that um, it was it, it received the parents' support through the IVF program that he was running um, because the father was HIV positive, and so the editing of the embryo was to um, prevent 
transmission, but you know, generational thing, transmission yeah. of HIV. The only reason I didn't put that into... Because I read that story, and the only reason I didn't put it into my medical news stories because I thought it was a load of shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I um, just thought health, was, there was on a, not one publication. His colleagues all said they didn't believe it. Well, yeah. Look, what I'm, made people think it was I, real and I, not just a, some person making a grandiose claim? I think we should be hugely sceptical for the reasons you're pointing to, but I think there are also relevant reasons to understand why he wouldn't have published in advance of oh, announcing it. Um, exactly, you know, because um, if he had tried to go through ethical challenges, uh, uh, processes. processes, and had done some pre-publication and all of that sort of thing, um, almost certainly he would have been stopped. Um, and so now the medical story becomes one of now, if it's true, yep. um, the genie's out of the bottle. You know, so now that we know we can Genetic do manipulation it. for IVF. Yeah. yeah, look, it was a big one, I agree. And, yeah, look, I didn't know what to make of it. I shouldn't say it. I mean, but I did look at it and sort of think, OK, so not one publication. This isn't published research. It's just someone announcing I've done something. Mm-hmm. But, um, anyway, I suppose watch trained the space. At, trained at Stanford and working out of a, um, a research hospital in Shenzhen. So... You know, it's not the backwater. It's it. it you know. Yeah, true. I think it's you know, and got, the investigations are underway. We'll and find it got out. enough media coverage to suggest that a lot of people thought it was legit. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Cyber Sue. Cyber Sue, you're going to tell us something about sure. technology. Well, the, the, the story that caught my eye in the last few days was um, the title was Medical Drones Saving Lives in Africa. Oh, nice. I love drones. Yeah. And, um, I wish I, I had know, one. Yeah, we've already been speaking about drones this morning. Yes, Radio Marinara so, talking about drones and how they help seal populations, monitor them. Exactly. Using drones. Fantastic. Exactly. What, what are the health people so, using drones well, for? So drones aren't all bad. They have a bad reputation, but there's some really good things happening around the world. And um, this story in Africa was about some clinics that in um, rugged central Africa they get um, completely closed in during the rainy season through muddy muddy roads and there's a handful of clinics and very competent doctors in these rural areas who um, have a medical emergency they know what to do but they don't have the equipment or the blood that they need to treat patients Um, and then meanwhile in the city there's two stories full of um, medicines that are expiring but they just can't get the medicines to the communities so um, a company called Zipline got together with a local graduate who had this text messaging system and set up this way where the doctor in the regional clinic could uh, send a message saying we need some blood now Um, the drone will get um, kitted out with the equipment or the blood sent out to the clinic and within 30 minutes the um, the blood reaches the person that it needs in the rural clinic. God, that's amazing. I'm surprised drones can travel that far. I suppose they must have various control mechanisms, not just the, you know, the iPhone. Well, I'm (laughs) just thinking of a guy with a remote. Yes. That's just me. Yeah, Yeah. well, these are super, super fancy ones. They can travel at 75 um, kilometres an hour and they can go 50 miles. And so 30 minutes it takes them to get to a village that otherwise they couldn't have got to. So the technology is really advancing and really saving lives. They started in Rwanda and in Rwanda, and they're starting in um, Tanzania. Wow, so that's impressive. When, how far off are we having drones carrying the actual doctors, nurses, you know, like a mini helicopter? Yeah. That would be nice. Well, I, I mean, don't think we're far off. It, it's really interesting because the um, founder, he, um, the founder's name's Keller Renando, and he kind of expresses frustration that um, in Western countries there's what he said, too much talk and not enough walk, and that this is a great demonstration of the fact that these small countries can have a, can they can move much faster in um, kind of taking the benefits of disruptive technology such as drones, and um, I thought that was interesting. 
Um, and then it took me to another story in Australia. Do you want me yeah. to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, why not? Go on. Yeah. So um, in Australia, they had a competition out in the outback. Um, they have this mannequin called um, Farmer Joe, and it's based on a real-life story where he couldn't get access to um, medical um, services. And so every year they have a competition with the universities from around the world where they have a scenario and they have to have an automated drone that comes in, lands on his farm, has to follow a few waypoints, fly underneath the kind of no-fly zones, land next to him. Mm. He puts his blood into the drone and then it takes off. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, It's all these, you know... It is such a brave new world, all these technologies. Yeah, and I've said this before, I know, but when I look at what we do in healthcare, I know this is going to sound a little bit weird, but probably 80% of it is really very basic. You know, 80% of what I do on a daily basis, anyone could do. And so a lot of these technological options, apps, um, things like telehealth, you know, they, they... I just think there is so much we could transfer to, um, you know, artificial intelligence, basic apps, basic information systems, and we're a long way off getting there. It's not tomorrow because it's still the human touch that's the most important thing about healthcare. I think the the human element, the you know, two people connecting together, trying to help um, each other, or one person trying to help another. But there, you know, I just hear these sorts of things like telehealth, like drones, like all the apps, and I just think. You know, it just feels like we're on the verge of a complete change, but I don't know. We're on the verge, but we've got a... um, Healthcare is a risk-averse, understandably, environment. It's complex and it's got a lot of legacies and it's hard to compare to... You look at other industries like banking, uh, travel and finance and health is um, a long way behind in our rapid uptake of these technologies. Three. Triple. Ah. Now... We have a special guest in the studio, as previously mentioned. Oh, it, <laughs> I'm getting sidetracked already. Normally, before I introduce the guest, I say, you're listening to 3RRR, I'm Dr Doolittle. Over here we have Panel Beta, and over here we have Cyber Sue. Now I feel relaxed and ready to introduce our special guest. Amanda Pomery is the Director of Support and Community Outreach at the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. Amanda is a registered psychologist and holds a PhD, so I probably should have called you doctor, from the University of Melbourne in cancer survivorship, developing evidence-based standards for the selection and development of cancer support group leaders. Amanda's role focuses on implementation of awareness campaigns and programs supporting men and their families affected by prostate cancer. G'day, even though we've g'day'd you already. G'day officially, Amanda. G'day back, thank you. (laughs) Nice to see you here. Hey, why don't you um, kick us off by just telling us a little bit about prostate cancer. Like, what is it? How common is it? Yeah, and um, I think that's a really important thing for us to focus on first because a lot of men, one, don't know they have a prostate, and two then don't know what to do with it. So a lot of the time I I talk about, it's just raising awareness in the community about what is prostate cancer. So basically, if you're born a male, you have a prostate. Right. And from that perspective, what the prostate is, it's a small gland that makes up part of the male reproductive system. So it's really there, it sits beneath the bladder, Yep. And the um, the fluid that's um, attached to that helps with the semen. So, so it makes the, so the testes make the semen. It send it up a little tube. The prostate wax in all the fluid around the semen. Yes, and then it does its job. Exactly. Right. And how big is it? About the size of a, let me guess. A walnut. Oh, it's going to go walnut. Yeah. Oh, and I would have sounded so smart if you hadn't beat me to the punch. <laughs> that would have been the first thing I got right all year too. I'm so sad now. Um, so prostate, is it the commonest male cancer? It is. 
It is. Why is that? Do you know? What, what, what's so special about it that it causes so much cancer? Well, there are a couple of things. Obviously, um, every male has one. Yep. We do have a high rate within when in Australia. So, um, but also it's a um, disease that often affects those in the aging population. So, yep. we're getting older and we're living for longer. So, we're seeing obviously more prostate cancer coming through. Mm. So, Amanda, is there any kind of risk factors for getting prostate cancer apart from getting older, like riding a motorbike or? Riding a bicycle Push or bikes. anything? Push bikes. <laughs> no. no, no. Everyone cycling this morning doesn't have to worry about that. Um, where the risk factors are is really around family history. So if you've got a father, a brother, um, anyone within your family, yep. if, if they've had prostate cancer or also other cancers, you need to be on the lookout. Doesn't everyone need to be on the lookout or just even doubly so? Look, I think everyone needs to know around what are the checks that they need to put in place. Yep. So for prostate cancer, we have a process of testing yep. and that's through a simple blood test called PSA, which is prostate-specific antigen. And really what we're trying to encourage men is to talk to their GPs yep. about their health, full stop, but also around prostate cancer as soon as they hit 50. Yep or if they're 40 and have had a family history of prostate oh, cancer. Oh, interesting. Because 50 mm. is when it all begins otherwise. That's when they start testing your poo to see if mm. you've got bowel cancer, you know, it comes in the mail. That, you know, <laughs> it is basically... That's an oddly formed <laughs> sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, when the worst thing about your 50th birthday, yeah. um, not that I'd know because it's so long ago I can't barely remember. No, the worst <laughs> thing about your 50th birthday is you get this present from the government. It's like this um, big envelope and it's got this whole pack in it and they want you to put in a poo sample and you send it back through the mail and they and it, then every two years from there on they test your poo to see if you've got microscopic amounts of blood as a sign of bowel cancer and so the PSA is sort of like the equivalent for prostate you have this blood test from a roughly 50 onwards 40 if you've got a family history just to check whether the PSA goes up in which case you might need something more you wanted to ask something cyber Sue. yeah so what does the um the prostate cancer foundation actually do then Sure. So we um, are the, the community-based organisation and we're the peak health body for prostate cancer. Wow. Um, and what we look at is funding fantastic research. Um, we look Why don't at... you fund crap research? No, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. um, you know what? You could have a research project and why do people call it the prostrate gland? That must yes. be the most annoying thing about working in prostate, that everyone says, I've got prostrate cancer, there, a cancer of lying flat. Sorry, yeah, go on, I'm I, And I don't want to say, because I'm sure there are listeners who probably do say prostrate, and then as soon as you have it in your head, you can't, you can't stop yes. saying it. So, I, I always um, have to think twice. Yeah, but it's definitely prostate. Yep. And, and so we're there for the community. So what we do is we give voice to and advocate for men at risk of or diagnosed with prostate cancer. And in terms of the, the growing numbers of those that have been living after a diagnosis, we're looking at over 200,000 plus. So it's a lot right. of men. Wow. Mm. Um, so people talk about the tsunami when it comes to cancer. Mm. Because we've got fantastic survivorship rates with prostate cancer, um, five years, we're looking at you know 95%. Um, we do have a lot of men that are living in our community, mm. dealing with side effects, dealing with their quality of life. And so part of what our organisation does is also um, build in awareness and we look at support programs in order to improve the, the quality of those lives of men who've been affected. You've um, pointed to um, uh, testing um, but isn't there some contention around when that testing should happen? 
Um, and is that that's the that's the dividing argument? Yeah. Look, there is always a bit of. Um tension around when do we test and do we screen or do mm. we test um, and you know, oh, do you want to clarify that distinction between screening and testing well what we were talking about with um, collection of poo in the mail yep. um, that's looking at screening so there has been a huge um, uh, I would imagine literature review as well as consensus by those um, expert in the area to determine that in order to reduce the risk of the general population the best approach for us is to have a screening process where it's been shown that it's best to go in at 50 and everyone to do it in order for us to track where everyone's at and help to reduce um, the incidence. However, with prostate cancer, there's been similar process to create PSA guidelines, but what it's shown is that screening isn't the best approach, but rather testing uh-huh. um, at an appropriate time frame is what will help to decrease your risk. So, because whenever you engage in treatment, there are pros and cons. And in a lot of cancer spaces, there's a, a risk of overdiagnosis and de- over-treatment. And so what um, with prostate cancer is we have to be really careful to make sure that we are testing and treating the most appropriate cases. It's probably worth pointing out at this point too, this has gone on for every illness that we screen for. And we really started screening and, and doing these sort of processes probably around about 20 years ago now for various things. And initially there was this enormous enthusiasm. Prevention's better than cure. Screen, screen, catch it early, do it, everything. But the problem is a lot of illnesses, if you treat them very early, the complications of the illness of the t- treatment yeah. is worse than the actual illness yeah. and so screening got it came under a lot of flack after it in, in sort of the 2000s for overdiagnosing, picking up things too early and then people would get scared you they'd say to someone you've got this slightly raised say PSA or this or that or the other thing and they'd go oh I could have cancer I want it removed and they might have surgery when in actual fact, waiting, watching and seeing, it might go away by itself, it might never develop into cancer and you might then have treatment with all sorts of side effects. Three, triple R. And we're back. Sunday morning, it's Radiotherapy. And you have myself do little Cyber Sue and Panel Beater and we're chatting with Amanda Pomery from the uh, Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. Um, Cyber Sue, you wanted to lead off with a question. Yes, so Amanda, why is it that we need these organisations like, you know, Breast Care, Bre- Breast Cancer Australia and your, your organisation, why do we need them? Why is this not run through hospitals and through governments? Sure, I think the, an important thing for me to start with is, is explaining a little bit of the history when it comes to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia because in the advancements in this area, we're not looking at um, decades and decades um, and when we were talking about um, AIDS previously. So back in 1996, there was actually no specific prostate cancer control. Right. There was no organisation representing those men. So what was happening is... These men were going through treatment, surviving afterwards, walking out back into the community without anywhere to go. So there wasn't any information specific to them. There was no specialised areas. Um, when I'm t- thinking about the prostate cancer specialist nurses, for example, yep. there was mm. none of that around. Mm. And there wasn't an organisation that was advocating for these men. Um, so basically these men connected via support groups so of their own accord 
And this is wow, very yes. specific to Australia, which is, I think, really fantastic when you think about it. These men came together and really created their own health movement in response, started these support groups across the community, which we now have 170 across Australia. Wow. And they all came together and said, we need a peak body to advocate and represent us. That's a tremendous example, isn't it, yeah. of consumer drive? Yeah. yeah. You know what's interesting about I reckon you know quite amazing too is the develop is the emergence of this concept of survivorship. So back you know prior to that you got an illness you got treated you got better you're on your own. And of course with increasing rates of survival in cancer um this sort of subspecialty in cancer in, has emerged called survivorship which is essentially all the people who have had cancer and are now in basically maintenance phase maybe having testing once a year but they're fine but they've often still got a whole lot of problems. Mm. All the ongoing side effects of whatever, the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, the immunotherapy, or the surgery. And so it's a little bit like developing a chronic illness. Even though your cancer's gone and you're better, it's a little bit like you've got diabetes. Like you might have a little bit of, say, mm. if it's prostate cancer, mm. you might have a little bit of incontinence. You might have ongoing sexual side effects. You might have who knows. And so that's this whole concept of creating um, some sort of space where we're aware that it's not all done and dusted, that you still yes. have issues to do with your life and your health. Exactly. And at the time, we all know um, when someone's told that they've got cancer, it's a huge impact on themselves. Mm -hmm. They create this new sense of identity from it and they're searching for what is the best process. And prostate cancer is a really tricky cancer to treat because there are options. It's not an ABC and you're done. So they have to think about pros and cons, what suits them, and often it's about weighing up what they value because there can be these side effects that you speak about um, with incontinence and erectile dysfunction. So um, how you can minimise those and make sure that you don't regret the decisions you make mm. yep. so it's around getting the best information available and, and making sure you're having really good discussions with your health team with your partners um, having you know information discussed across family members as well so it's really changing the narrative I think um, of of you know the cancer experience to ensure that people uh, are bringing that knowledge into um, surviving as well as they can Hey Amanda, in the bit of time we've got left, what um, what can you tell us about the programs that uh, you guys run? So um, in terms of my area, we obviously look to support those 170 support groups across the country and they offer fantastic community-based peer support. As technology continues, we were just talking about drones. Well, we've actually looked at developing an online community which takes those key elements of peer support but brings it online. So there's peer-to-peer -peer forums. There's a Wonderful. fantastic research blog that brings the latest research in lay language to people. And then we also have a video gallery of which we've got webcasts of which we have, a, you know, our celebrity here has, has been involved in one of those. So um, Celebrity Doolittle. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So I think I said bugger all though on it. I sat there. It was in the evening that you filmed that one that I was on. And, you know, I think I was half asleep. And also you gave us free food beforehand. So I picked out. <laughs> And so I really just wanted to sleep, but thank you. No, yeah. well, we were thinking about doing a, um, uh, what was it, the Graham um, Norton special with some wine, but we thought that wasn't a good health situation to no. be promoting. No, and we'd be smoking too. Yeah. We could sit back with cigars and wine and talk about um, <laughs> cancer. Yeah, that wouldn't go down well. Wouldn't go down Mind well. Mind you, we'd get front page coverage and great, um, you know, market penetration, as they say. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Go, <laughs> go back to you. Back to you, Amanda. 
So our online community is, you can access via our website and that's another fantastic place to go to for all the information, evidence-based resources. We deliver free resources and um, information out into the community. We also have a fantastic peer education program called our Ambassador Program, where you can get someone who's had an experience of prostate cancer go out and speak to you in your community, which helps to raise awareness. Amanda, how do we find your website? You go to pcfa.org.au. Thank you. And on that very... How's... Panel Peter, how's Cyber Sue? She's doing all... That oh. was so professional. Oh. That was so... Prof- I, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten. Oh. You're coming back, Cyber Sue. Um, that is the end of that segment. Now, Amanda, thanks so much for coming in. You're going to stick around because we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to come back and Panel Beat is going to tell us about some research he's been doing, you know, scanning the literature about um, the impact that uh, mental illness has on some countries with respect to diminishing people's ability to partake in democracy. So you listen to Radiotherapy through for last Sunday morning. We will be back shortly. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You have myself, Dr Doolittle. On my right, not that the direction is relevant to you, the panel beater. On my left, our new panellist, CyberSue. And to in the far distant corner, we have Amanda Pomery from Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, who's sticking around for the rest of the show to help join in the conversation. Hey, uh, panel beater, yep. my friend, my buddy, who I don't know what your actual career is, which is embarrassing after so many years of being friendship. But anyway, <laughs> what do you got in store for us today? So um, we found ourselves... Uh Getting a, um, a democracy sausage last week, didn't we? A dose of democracy. Yeah. I don't get one because I'm on the postal ballot. I have to cook my own. Oh, really? Yeah, it's one of the drawbacks. I love going to vote. Do you? Anyway, so I was in um, in the queue and um, uh, there was quite a line. I timed it wrong, obviously. Um, and while I was there, it was just, you know, as you do, you're thinking about democracy, thinking about the thing that you're about to do and, you know, you, you, the voices in your head go, is this even relevant? Is my vote going to count? Especially when I live in, you know, the Soviet People's Republic of the Inner North and all of that. You know, so you kind of think, what's the consequences? But when you do reflect seriously, you recognise that democracy is not something that's experienced by um, most of the world. In fact, democracy is in the minority of of the way that the world uh, governance is is taken um, across countries of the world. And yeah, that is quite. That is actually a point that's worth just you know to reflect. It's quite amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? We yeah. take it for granted. We've grown up. Yada, we, yada. And we treat it as the norm. Yeah. Um, and it's not the norm. It's the exception. Mm. Certainly in terms of the way we understand democracy in Australia. Yeah. So then my mind wandered to how does that relate to radiotherapy type topics and I was thinking about how mental illness and the right to vote come together and came across a piece of literature um, where a few researchers uh, in late 2016 um, surveyed UN member countries um, to determine um, how they approached mental illness and participation in voting. Um, So they looked at 167 uh, countries and came up with some interesting conclusions. Um, Only 11% of those countries, so about 20 countries, um, had unconditional, in other words, no restrictions. So you're you're able to vote. You're able to register and then to vote. Regardless of mental illness. Yep, no matter what. Um, Then there was about one-third of the countries, um, so about 36%, deny all persons with any mental health the right to vote without qualifier. That's staggering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And um, that there's a subset of the discussion in the in the paper that talks about how this is partly explained by different different definitions and terminology when speaking about mental illness. So they were looking at constitutions and other documents held by the country in, or, in order to determine this. Um, and then finally, um, another 11% um, denied the right to vote to detained persons, right? So people in prisons. Who assumably is a proportion of people who also suffer mental illness. Yeah, exactly. Really, so really So broadly high. missing, though, we're still missing about 45%. Because it was about 11% unconditional, anyone can vote. 11% um, if detained. 35, 36% was deny all mental illness. What's the rest? Some sort of hybrid, I yeah. suppose. And, and so that then breaks down those that had various degrees of conditionality right. around your, your um, uh, participation. Can I just ask yeah. you too? Sorry, just can you just tell us what the paper is in case people want to look it up? Yeah, sure. Because I know I searched it. You told me, and I found it pretty easily. the The title is "Mental Illness and the Right to Vote: A Review of Legislation Across the World," um, and I haven't got the other citation. I think it was in the International Review of Psychiatry. Yeah, and it was easy to find. Anyway, August, go on with um, where you were heading. Yep. Sorry to interrupt. Um, so anyway, just reading through this. So first of all, we've established that um, there's not a common understanding of the right to vote, yep. which is interesting in and of itself because the Human Rights, uh, the Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, is that um, and of which all of these are signatories. So even signatories to the Declaration of Human Rights yeah. are also redefining for themselves domestically what that actually means. Yes, that's an important point. So everyone surveyed in this paper was... Uh, every country surveyed was a signatory to that declaration. So in theory, none of this should be going on. My big problem that first comes to mind, if they're denying people the right with mental illness, how the heck do they do that? So I had depression, I saw a psychologist. Does that mean if I lived in one of those countries, I couldn't vote? Well, yeah, yeah. So, and, and this points to the defining of it, you know. So what is it? So we could look at a spectrum, um, something, you know, the spectrum's interesting and debatable of itself, but we could look at something like episodic depression yep. right through to schizophrenia and uh, dementia yep. um, and all of and everything in between and around and about that. Um, so countries were determining for themselves um, how that would play out. In Australia, because... Um, it, it, and Australia does become, a, again, a really interesting um, case study in democracy. Because voting is compulsory, the obligation is you, on the citizen, to give the state a reason to excuse you. So in other countries where um, voting is not compulsory, um, you have to convince the state to let you to vote. Right. Okay. In Australia, you have to convince the state to exclude you. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, yeah, in the US, you have to register to vote. So you have to go and, you know, sign something. What, do they have things like in those countries where you tick a box? Have you ever suffered from a mental illness? Yes, no. If you tick yes, you're out. Yeah, well, in some countries that appears to be the case. Right. Yep. Um, but, you know, so... Mental illness, um, and if you associate mental illness with poverty, so one of the criteria to be able to vote in the United States is a fixed address. Um, if you're in poverty, you probably don't have a fixed address, and then we know all what that means when you do demographics and, and so on and so forth. And we've Which, already... Yeah, and that immediately raises the question of who's the advocate for those people who then are not able to vote and don't have an influence in politics. Right, that's right. And so um, in dementia, that's a relatively easier one to organise because we can just go to the legal guardian. You know, um, because de dementia doesn't happen overnight. Generally speaking, for your for most Australians, they will organise um, legal guardians who can act on their behalf. But 
Um, who's acting on behalf of people with episodic depression and, and other and other ailments? The thing that gets me, and I, I mean, I suspect you'd have the same thoughts, Amanda, being both a psychologist and working for a support organisation that represents your consumers, is there seems to me this whole concept is mixing up two concepts, mental illness with competence. So what they're saying is you're not competent to vote. Now, competence, though, and mental illness don't go hand in hand. In fact, competence has to be assessed on a decision-by-decision basis. Mm, So in the healthcare, you know, if someone has to make some decision, you have to assess whether they're competent because, say, they've got dementia or whatever, they've got some other illness that's affecting their ability to make decisions. It has to be around a specific topic, like, do you want surgery next week? Yes, no. It can't be just you're competent or incompetent. And the decision-making around voting... It'd be very hard to be incompetent to vote, I'm thinking, because most people's voting pattern represents lifelong beliefs, their family background. Um, Not that many people are swing voters. So I don't get... I don't think mental illness would very frequently impact on competence. Precisely. And I think this use of the word competence, the other word that pops up in the literature is uh, capacity. Um, And so capacity is often a word used when discussions surround um, young people's right to vote. Um, So we saw these demonstrations demonstrations um, in uh, major cities around Australia over climate change. We had 15, 16-year-olds, obviously not entitled to vote, but dealing with an issue that clearly is of consequence to them. So, um, you know, the the general reason why under 18 isn't allowed to vote is because there's an idea that they don't have the capacity to understand the issues. Hey, I want us to just, before, we're going to come back and you can um, ask a question, Amanda, I can see you keen, but I think we should just play a couple of station breaks, let everyone have the chance for these complex concepts to sink into their head. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Listen to Radiotherapy with myself, Dr Doolittle, the panel beater, Cyber Sue and Amanda Pomery from Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. And we've just been talking about democracy and the impact that mental illness has on it in different countries in the world. Amanda, you had a question. Yeah, just when you were talking about the whole concept of capacity and being able to to be able to, to accurately vote, I guess, in whatever shape that is... There's been so much history around when you think about the argument of women didn't have the capacity to vote because they weren't employed and um, they were at home so they didn't have that um, worldly view to be able to provide insight into how they would vote. And then when you think about um, with the Indigenous population that there's been multiple times Mm. that the argument of capacity has been used to exclude populations um, and community really that make up our whole society and it's just really sad to see the same arguments being used over and over again well yeah I, I think it is and it, it comes up you know so the the, the go-to um, off-the-shelf phrase around this is a, uh, a phrase from American politics where it was no taxation without no yeah no taxation without representation so if you were being taxed you could therefore expect representation right and so once once women were being taxed once um, any race was being taxed Etc. Etc. And that's ble- and then that's a phrase from um, like the 50s or 60s, I think 50s maybe. Um, and then when we know that so many young people are being taxed, um, then why why wouldn't they be able to vote? And the way that we got to 18, by the way, guys, just a bit of pub trivia. Yeah, I love this. The way we got to 18 in Australia, do you know? No. So we were 21 
until the Vietnam War. So oh, the argument was that if we're going to conscript somebody to go to war, they should be allowed to vote. And that we went from 21 to 18 because we were going to conscript 18-year-olds. You know, the other group that I hear talked about a lot, in fact, I've seen it a lot in the media from the US recently, mainly because I watched the Jim Jeffries show and they've covered it a few times, <laughs> is prisoners. You know, because they've got such a massive prison prop- population now. And I think in the US, in for certain crimes, you you're excluded from voting for life. And so now they just have, like, literally, you know, that, I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands or what, but they, I think it's hundreds of thousands of people who cannot vote because they've had some crime and, you know, they've got such stupid mandatory sentencing laws yep. that they've got people who are, you know, they've got caught smoking marijuana three times, they can't vote for the rest three of their life. Strikes, you're done. Yeah, and then you think of the democratic, demographic profile of US prisoners and so on. Um, time's racing away do little but there's another concept just to throw into the mix here while okay, we're thinking about for Sunday morning. capacity and competency is the right to vote the flip side of that coin the right to vote is the right to be elected ah right now that's fairly benign in most scenarios but if you think of various scenarios where certain politicians have access to the nuclear codes and a particular red button mm. the idea of mental competency becomes quite relevant to the electorate yes, um, does. yeah and i wonder how you react to that just off the cuff well, I just sit my off the cuff. I'm wondering if I should let you guys go first, because um, my off the cuff is how do you assess competency to be the a politician? A politician, uh, you know, and it's such, you know, it's thro- incompetence is thrown around so much, and it's rare that people genuinely are incompetent. I disagree. I, I feel that in all of our employment, we have a role. Mm. We have a clear um, position description that we're contracted to do, that we've identified what are the key skills, knowledge and experience in order to do that role. So why wouldn't leading the country, but, one of the most important mm. positions there is, yep. why wouldn't there be a framework we, for what's seen as important there? When we put someone into those roles, we normally uh, look at their CV and interview them for 25 minutes. Um, a politician, to get in, goes through the most extensive interview process in the world, the hundreds of media interviews, the whole country judging every one of their moves, their tweets, their Facebook page. So haven't they gone through that to an extreme degree already? Oh. I think there's no, a lot I don't of, think so. No, I think I, an electoral uh, evaluation of somebody's mental health is a flawed evaluation of somebody's mental health. But what evaluation would you do? What would be the gold standard? Uh, well, I think that's for people like yourself and yeah, your, see, your I don't area think of expertise. To, yeah, no. Some but, people would say, yeah, you have to see a psychiatrist who do psychological testing like, you know, you do for some jobs, but a lot of those are flawed too. Well, clearly that's very contestable, but... But we are dealing, like, in a very real sense... I say let everyone stand and let the public decide. Right. <laughs> and so all the public, 100% suffrage? Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would. I'd include people who'd been to prison. Um, I'd include, certainly, I wouldn't exclude people with mental illness. I agree That's with me. that. It's life experience, right? Yeah. And it's people who are representative of our community. Hey, uh, everyone's going to have to figure that one out for themselves because <laughs> they've only got about a minute and a half left until we hand over to the scientists from Einstein and GoGo. Hey, uh, thanks everyone for coming in. Panel B, do you got a big week planned? Just relaxing? I do. Um, teaching's finished for the year. Oh, yay. So I just head down, bum up and So right, that means right, we know right. slightly that you must work for a university. Oh. Actually, I knew oh, that. that out of the bag. Cyber Sue, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Did you like being on the panel side rather than the guest side of the equation? 
Oh, it was an interesting experience. I hope I um, delivered adequately. Yeah, you'll be back next year. And Amanda, yes. Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. What was the website again? One more time for people to jump on. PCFA.org.au. PCFA.org.au. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now you can head back to the other side of the river. I will. And relax in the... I'm the right, I actually live on the border of the river, so I can't yeah, really speak. I'm in Southbank, so like... Our border I, protection. Yeah, I virtually live on the... In fact, often I have a drink on the river on that little pub sort of under the bridge. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.